Hello and welcome to the Nile or Nine podcast. It's myself, Nile Byrne, and my co-host, Andrea Cleary. Hello. Hi, how are you? I hit the mic there. Sorry. I, I hit the mic anyone. to breathe in. Uh, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Oh, I don't know why I've just remembered this now. Um, I The other day I was on YouTube and I saw, it was suggested to me, um, the Beastie Boys doing SNL when they come out from like the subway. Oh yeah. And I was like, I was like really annoyed that like you hadn't ever told me about that because <laughs> it's really cool. I was like, why has Niall never told me about this? But then I gathered that it was actually quite a famous performance and I probably just should have known about it myself, but it's Listen, brilliant. we've never done a podcast about uh, Beastie Boys performances, but if you want one, I can make one for you. <laughs> I could definitely do a list on the 100%. website if I'm have nothing else to write about. And that'd be a good one. Yeah, <laughs> please do. Yeah, please do. But yeah, I thought I thought of you, um, and it was amazing. And I ended up watching loads more performances. Great, great. So it'll. Well, I actually yeah. did catch a. Uh, let's just like completely divulge or diverge from what we were going to talk about for a second uh, already. And uh, yeah. I was when I was in London <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I went to this exhibition called Beyond the Streets, and it was like a, a street art exhibition. Uh, but it also had a lot of like music stuff in there. There was a big thing about the Clash with their backdrop uh, because it had a graffiti backdrop from a New York writer who stayed in London. And then for some reason, not really 100% sure because it's not exactly graffiti or street art, but there was a Beastie Boys section where they had the um, the the three lads um, uh, Adidas tracksuits that they wore uh, in, in their mid early 2000s, mid 2000s tour probably, uh, and loads of um, memorabilia and paraphernalia from the band themselves, including the one thing that I really liked, which was, um, it was around the Paul's Boutique era, and it was Mike uh, Mike D. I'll actually read it out to you, because it's very funny. So basically, if they were recording the album, and at the time they were recording the album, they were in LA, and they were staying in a hotel, of course, being... The lads that they are, they were a bit very messy and uh, they were doing things they shouldn't have done. The hotel was called the Mondrian. Here is, uh, it says, to Mr. Yauk. Oh, it's actually Adam Yauk. Um, so uh, MCA. Suite 801 from Klaus Ortlieb, uh, general manager. This is a memorandum. Uh, regarding falling items from window. Date, August 8, <laughs> 1988. Dear Mr. Yauk, I have received several complaints that are items falling out of your window and hitting people on the sidewalk. Please let me know if there's anything defective on your windows so we can eliminate this problem. I'm looking forward to your cooperation in this matter, respectfully. Klaus. That's an excellent memo. Passive aggressiveness to the max. Let us know if there's a problem with the window. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It couldn't possibly be you, of course. That's great. Yeah. No, no, uh, uh, sir, I would not suggest for a moment that you were responsible for the items. But listen, if things are falling out the window, there must be an issue. There must be something going wrong. Let us know there what we can do. There must be an issue. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But anyway, we've completely um, um, taken the uh, podcast car off the motorway and driven it into yeah. uh, the local town. And now we're back on the motorway. We're back. And Andrea, what is this episode about? Episode 215. What are we going to be discussing? So episode 215 of the Nile and Nine podcast is about um, Cass Elliot, um, also known as Mama Cass, but we don't call her Mama Cass because she didn't like to be called Mama Cass. So we won't call her Mama Cass. Um, I wanted to do this 
podcast. So one of her solo songs uh, became a, a viral sound on TikTok. Of course. All right. This um, is where it, it comes was from. The, I was going to ask. Yeah, this is kind of the the idea. Um, uh, the, the Pedro Pascal and um, what's his name? Very famous actor. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, <laughs> that meme of them looking at each other in the car from The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, uh, Make Your Own Kind of Music by Mama Cass or by Cass Elliot. Oh God, I can't believe I did that. Was the sound and then it went viral and the young people as they do became curious, like what is this song? It's obviously amazing. Who is this person? And kind of doing a bit of a deep dive into her and uh, her life and her legacy. And there was there has been a kind of a, a reappraisal of how she's been treated um or she was treated uh, during her career that is to say very very poorly mm. and even after her death she was treated very very poorly you know she was uh, a visible fat woman in the 1960s and 70s who um was just treated really poorly for for that reason and i wanted to just kind of so i i i messaged you and I was like, we should do an episode about, about um, Cass Elliot. And you were like, I don't know anything about her. And I was like, perfect. I, I will, I will uh, woman'splain Cass Elliot to you, which uh, just sounds like a fun hour of my time. Good. I don't know no, about I'm you. I'm up for this. I'm up for this. <laughs> Once I believed that Yeah, so I guess I wanted to talk about like her life, her work. I will say like for anyone out there who is really into her and is really familiar with her story, there's a lot I'm going to be leaving out here. I'm not touching the Charles Manson stuff, okay? You can go and talk about that yourselves. Not for any political reasons. Um I just this episode would be two and a half hours long if I went into all of that. I also won't be going near her um her arrest in London. All very yeah, intriguing there's a bit, things. There's a to, bit I'm not touching. To Google, for I sure. know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can go and find that, find all that out. What I wanted to do is kind of explore what her legacy is and how how she's been treated and how we might um, think about learning from how she was treated uh, when it comes to how we treat women now in music. Um, and I mean, I was going to ask you what can you tell what what do you, what do you know about Cass Elliot? But I think the answer is is basically not much kind of that I don't um, know anything <laughs> okay well I'll tell you all about her so she was born Ellen Naomi Cohen in September 1941 in Baltimore in Maryland she is the granddaughter of uh, Russian Jewish emigrants on both sides and after she was born her family moved to Alexandria in Virginia and where she stayed until she was 15 
And then they moved back to Baltimore again, where she started to become involved with kind of theater and musical theater in school. She left her high school to move to New York shortly before she graduated. And there she performed in musicals and sang and worked in a, as a cloakroom attendant for a number of years um, while also singing. And then moved from New York to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career as a singer, which I find um, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, an overview of her um, of her musical projects. She joined a few bands. Um, first, she was in the Big Three uh, the band's called, named The Big Three with banjoist and singer T- uh, Tim Rose and singer John Brown. And then in 1964, she, along with Zal Yanovsky and Denny Doherty, formed The Mugwumps, which is a, just a great name for a band. And Denny Doherty, who... Hmm, okay, Denny. Denny Doherty, in the meantime, also formed a band called... The New Journeymen, who Cass would eventually join and that would eventually become the Mamas and the Papas. Um, but Denny Doherty was also the object of Cass Elliot's um, un- very much unrequited love. If you think Fleetwood Mac are complicated, this band um, are very, very, very complicated. Um, so the Mamas and the Papas were made up of uh, Cass, Denny, John Phillips and the band's other female member, the singer and model Michelle Phillips. Michelle Phillips was married to or married John Phillips. The like Fleetwood Mac complications come in when Michelle had an affair with Denny, who Cass was in love with. And there's all of that. And I'm not going to go too much into all of that either, but it was it was a very, very sad time for everybody basically but um especially for for Cass but yeah the Mamas and Papas were born and would obviously come to be one of the defining sounds of the 1960s counterculture movement really epitomized by their harmonies their four-part harmonies their quite introspective poetic lyrics really evocative melodies and when it comes to the sound of the Mamas and Papas, it, it, it is Cass Elliot who kind of really drives that sound. She has that really distinctive voice. She's got quite a low register and it's just beautiful. I mean, will we play the the world's most uh, famous <laughs> Mamas and Papas song? Sure. Just in case there's someone out there who's not aware of Let's it. Do uh, it. This is California Dreaming. All the leaves are
so iconic and uh, possibly possibly overused at this point <laughs> in terms of shorthand. But Certainly I've never once like not wanted to listen no, to it. Was it. A great song. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, but yeah, it gets a lot of needle drops in, in cinema. That can be a bit much. Yeah. Um, oh, I went to see a, a, a Wong Kar Wai film. I can't remember which one it was. It was part of the IFI festival, and that is used a lot in it. Um, it's like it's the needle drop happens maybe like eight, nine, ten times throughout the film. Wow. That song, um, which was very, very interesting. But um, I never get bored. Like if it ever comes on, I'm never like, oh, this song again. Like you would be with a lot of kind of classic songs that are so ubiquitous and so like part of the culture. But I never, ever get bored of that song. It's just so amazing and infectious. And as a person who loves kind of seasonal music it's a it's a seasonal song that that literally fits into every single season maybe not spring but like it's a song about being in new york in the winter so you've got winter covered thinking about being in california in the summer and missing that and then it also just sounds autumnal and oh it's like all the leaves are brown it's amazing i love it so much um so yeah, they had a very, very, uh, the band had a really sharp rise to fame with their first album in 1966, which is called If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears. And it was received quite well by the music press. Rob Sheffield for the Rolling Stone wrote, uh, the Mamas and Papas celebrated all the sin and sleaze of 60s LA with folksy harmonies, acoustic guitars and songs that told inquiring minds way more than they wanted to know. And on their January 1966 debut, if you can believe your eyes and ears, they sh- they somehow made it all sound groovy. Um, and uh, I do kind of yearn for the days when the music press used words like groovy, groovy. in a very wow. in a very sincere way. <laughs> I think that's great. every now and again I want to um, use the word groovy in a in a review. I think I think you should just for the sake of it. But it's like I just can't bring myself to do it. Quite, it's quite let's hard. let's try and do it's it. It's real groovy, man. At some You're stage, like, it's just groovy. <laughs> hard one to do. Like, I know, I know. It's a hard one to pull off, but if we 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 could bring it back. Yeah, I'm just saying. I think <laughs> between us all, I um, have used it. And on that, I have album used it this well. February. Turns out. <laughs> oh, there you go. In a in a in a piece on the website about a song. Yeah, I have. Um, Amazing. So. <laughs> You know, it's always there, the um, urge. The urge is always there. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so Bruce Eder all, wrote for um, all music that the album embraced folk rock, pop rock, pop and soul, and also reflected the kind of care that the acts like the Beatles were putting into their records at the time. And so, yeah, that 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 song is obviously very, you know, familiar to a lot of people but that that groove that grooviness is very much there on the album um there's uh, a song called i call your name off the album that i love um you can hear like a little clip of it maybe i call your name but you're not there was i to blame for being Can't take it in 
So the thing about when the Mamas and Papas happened, when they came out, everybody fell in love with Cass. She was the selling point. She was funny. I read a little bit and I crochet a little bit and I watch television. Yeah. And I go out and yeah. carouse and yeah. burn down buildings. <laughs> she was personable. She would joke around with audiences while they were on stage. She was just so, so likable. And she received the most fan mail from fans of any person in the group. She was really celebrated for her voice and her personality and her talents. But there was also this flip side um, of how she was treated um, because of her size, because she was a fat woman. That just ha means that the narrative around her has always and probably will always carry this air of real sadness and uh, tragedy. So I want to talk a bit about like how we treat women <laughs> this was my this was my plan all along Niall um to get feminism I thought it might be you've been asking a lot of questions about yeah. um women in music uh in the discord and stuff lately yeah. so I thought this might be related yes sure. yeah so I mean um just for listeners I'm going to be talking a bit in in the next few sections about uh fat phobia and also um a bit about food and may, there might be some kind of uh, triggering language. So if you're not up for that, then that's OK. But anyway, so like for me personally, like as a as a girl, who, as, a, as a woman who was a girl in the 1990s, I'm definitely no stranger to how female pop stars are kind of treated with regards to their weight. And I, I, I also know that like the idea of a woman like Cass Elliot being a star when I was growing up just didn't feel possible so the, the, there was this kind of like regression that happened between the 60s and the 90s um but in the 1960s it was very very difficult for her to be a, a pop star she was a source of ridicule and humiliation because of her weight um it led to lifelong physical and emotional turmoil for her it's really hard to overstate how obsessed people were with her size throughout her entire life so as a child she um, it, her, her biographer writes that she, she started to put on weight when she was about 12. There was, you know, in the 1950s in America, there wasn't that, there wasn't as many larger people around as there are today. And there were certainly no role models for her. And also this was a time before plus size fashion even existed, you know? So it's like, you're, you're talking about a girl who has to wear like men's clothing. Um, and so when she was a teenager, she... Her parents sent her to a psychoanalyst, which was in the 1950s, really like a quite a, quite stigmatizing to mm, be seeing a psychoanalyst yeah. as as a young girl. Um, and her family doctor prescribed her diet pills um, that contained amphetamines, um, which led to her, you know, losing concentration at school and not being able to kind of focus on her work. And like I said earlier, she did leave school before she graduated. But I mean, it was the 1950s, you know, like <laughs> amphetamines were probably in everything that people were being uh, prescribed. But but still, it's yeah. uh, it's it's an issue. And then even when she was in in the Mugwumps, her first her second band, um, her the record label that they were signed with expressed concern that her 
size was preventing them from being able to break through um, and become a, a more popular band. Um, and they offered to pay for weight loss treatment for her, um, which she refused. Um, John Phillips, um, one of the members of the Mamas and Papas, was reluctant to allow her to join the band. And Cass herself w- was kind of initially refused to go on stage next to um, Michelle. And the thing about Michelle is she she was a model before she was in the band. Um, very, very beautiful, very, very thin. And Cass had this fear that audiences would compare the two women. Like, I can't overstate how poorly she was treated. Like, she she guest starred on episodes of Scooby-Doo where she was, like, subjected to fatphobic jokes. Annie... Any television show that she appeared on, it was the butt of the joke. And her way of dealing with it was just to laugh along and make some of the jokes herself, which kind of in our in our current lens and our current understanding of like how the media treats people like that. It's just it's completely obvious that it's a defense mechanism. And when you think about the 1960s and what the what the kind of idealized woman looked like in the 1960s, especially the idealized countercultural figure. It was this kind of rake thin, you know, androgynous figure like Edie Sedgwick or Twiggy. I think Twiggy was named like, you know, the face of 1966 or something like that, or like the woman of 1966. So there was very much a, a, a look for the counterculture. And I mean, the more we look into how the counterculture treated women in particular, the more that we understand that the kind of, you know, the peace and love um, element of it didn't always extend to people who weren't uh, white men. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so labels just, you know, constantly offering to pay. They offered like a, a weight loss clinic then so that they could better market the band she refused to take part in that, but the constant criticism did eventually lead to a life of very, very dangerous crash dieting, fasting um, for a period of time and just self-consciousness. There's a line in a, a song called Creek Alley um, that John wrote, uh, which is no no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. Yeah, I uh, that In that today. 1967 yeah, yeah. song. Yeah, which is... Um, he... He was just really cruel to her. Um, he didn't want her to join the band, as I said initially. And there's this weird story, right, where I'm like, she, she's told this story and he's told this story. But the story from his point of view goes, he didn't want her to join the band because she didn't have a good enough voice. Then they were all away somewhere and she got hit in the head with like steel piping or something like that. And all of a sudden she could sing in a in a higher range right this is what this was the story and she was allowed into the band now obviously that's not true (laughs) like we all can look at that now and say that that's not true so something changed and he let her into the band maybe the other two members um threatened to walk if they didn't let her if he didn't let her in but he always kind of resented how she looked and thought that she um took away from the the image of the band um which is ironic because she she became the most recognized and the most loved member of the band. But um, but yeah, he wrote he wrote that line about her and, um, you know, she sings on it. And uh, it's very, very sad uh, that that happens. It's supposed to be like a 
play on like no one's getting rich um like get getting fat is supposed to be like a, a reference to her um getting rich but you know there's many other ways you can say that i was gonna play it but you know what actually let's not um okay <laughs> i really i yeah i don't like it All right i'm gonna skip forward in the timeline a little bit but i will come back do you know anything about her death um i did read a bit earlier on so i i, I do know what happened. okay so uh, she she died when she was 32 which is incredibly young but her death has for decades like since since the day after she died there has been this really awful urban legend i suppose that is perpetuated by very fat phobic stereotypes um was that she choked to death uh on a, while eating a sandwich um and this rumor was kind of gleefully spread by the media uh she's been the butt of jokes about her death ever since um in her biography dream a little dream of me um the writer Eddie Fiegel writes about the doctor who first examined Cass after her death. He's named Dr. Greenberg, and he is responsible basically for this for this rumor. Um, so this is from the biography. Greenberg immediately offered a straightforward explanation for Cass's death. His first impression, he told the, the press, was that it appeared to have been a simple case of as- asphyxia. From what I saw when I got into the flat, he told the Daily Express, She appeared to have been eating a ham sandwich and drinking Coca-Cola while lying down, a very dangerous thing to do. This would be especially dangerous for someone like Cass, who is overweight and who might be prone to having a heart attack. She seemed to have choked on a ham sandwich, he continued, unwittingly giving rise to the myth that would still be in circulation more than three decades later. What Greenberg had presumably overlooked is the small but pertinent fact that the sandwich by Cass's bed had not in fact been touched, as recorded by Inspector Kenneth Hum once the police were called. So it had absolutely nothing to do with um, what she was eating. It also, there were no drugs found in her system either because there was also speculation that she had a drug overdose because she struggled with addiction and heroin addiction uh, throughout her life as well. Her her death and the the joke about the sandwich, um, it reminds me a lot of the the Elvis thing as well yeah. about the kind of the jokes that we have about Elvis's death and just how like because I really had to interrogate that the the Elvis one because I mean like j- jokes about him like dying while he was on the toilet or di- like it's it, it's it's actually like really really horrible to think that I would have ever laughed at something like that but I think I probably did in my younger years yeah, and I mean, I've was, really had to kind of like go and interrogate Well, it's that more and... we accepted those things as uh, absolute fact. And so mm. when you accept those things, you're kind of like, oh, you never question. You don't question yeah. these things at all. Yeah. So. And it's just, it's just a way of like dehumanizing someone. It was a way to punish Elvis Presley for putting on weight. And it's a way to punish Cass Elliot um, for uh being quote unquote overweight um although there's you know there's a lot of new new evidence about um quote unquote <laughs> obesity uh which suggests that she was actually not like she 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 was technically overweight for her size but uh, there is no way on god's green earth a woman of 32 and the weight that she was should have died from a heart attack yeah um due to being overweight that's just not that's just not what it is and i mean there's there's loads and loads of new evidence about 
well about how the term obesity is is not fit for purpose um that bmi scales are you know that that they are uh, developed from systems of white supremacy and like all of this stuff is now just being kind of broken down and tackled but it, what was actually most likely um cause of her death was um her crash dieting um in conjunction with her drug use put a lot of strain onto her heart and it's it was actually fat phobia and not being fat that caused her to die which is um you know there's I mean there was even like there was an Irish Times article that I read today from 2004 I won't say who the writer is I imagine he wouldn't write this now but even in that piece that was kind of looking at the legacy of Cass, Cass Elliot um there was a, a line about her weight, like how much she weighed when she died and comparing that to what a, to what a woman should weigh, you know, like a, a woman of her height and what she should weigh. And it's just so hard to get out of that mindset and get out of that space where you're blaming a woman for being overweight when in fact it is the in in most cases of people being overweight who have heart problems it's due to stigmatizing social conditions and not due to fat in their bodies so basically she there was no food found in her esophagus she didn't touch that sandwich and there's no drugs found in her system in the interest of kind of reappraising her legacy with this in mind and just thinking about her as a whole person and not as like the butt of a joke or a full stop at the end of the mamas and papas. I want to take a bit of a look at her very interesting, not always the most cohesive um, and certainly not boring um, solo career after she met um, or after she left uh, the mamas and the papas. So, so as the 1960s progressed, the band experienced a lot of internal issues. There was creative differences. Like I said, there was romantic conflicts and there was the strain of touring that was starting to take its toll. And in 1968, uh, Cass expressed an interest in pursuing some solo work away from the band. There's there's also uh, always this kind of rumor that they kicked her out of the band because of how she looked. Um, they didn't she they they were trying to get her to stay in the band because she was the draw and she was also at this stage a single mother um and wanted to spend less time on the road and more time at home raising her daughter um so she left the band in 1968 which was a complete shock to her fans and the industry at large the band continued on for a little bit but it would never be the same without her and in the future they did reunite for kind of one off performances and things like that so she then released her solo single, which was um, a cover, became a major hit and remains one of the most famous and beloved recordings of the song to this day. And it's a Dream a Little Dream of Me. Shining bright above you. Night seem to whisper, I love you. 
sang that song for my leaving sir practical and i was just as good <laughs> as cass as you can imagine uh given how much i sing these days i can tell you it was the first time i ever heard that song uh consciously was please um do you remember the help album from 1995 it was like a charity album it had um Radio has Lucky on it. It was the first. I think it was the first time Lucky was ever ever appeared. I think. Oh no, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, it was like a War Child um, compilation, and it had the Boo Radley, Stone Roses, Radiohead, Orbital, Portishead, uh, Mass Attack, Suede, doing shipbuilding. This one, which I remember, uh, which was done by Terry Hall and Salad. Uh, if you remember Salad, there you go. And UK band. Uh, the singer was called. Marianne van der Vloot. There you go. Uh, so yeah, that's where I heard that song for the first time ever. Anyway, that's that version. Yeah, so this was, she signed with Dunhill Records and she was contracted to release three albums with them. And uh, sorry, my cat is putting her tail on my face. Yes. Um, and she produced her, her first album, uh, which is called Dream a Little Dream, with um, John Simon, who previously worked with the band, as in the band, the band, not the band, the, band. the moms and, pa- and the papas, the band. Um, and she really liked his work with the band. And I mean, you can even hear at the beginning of that song, like there's, a, there's some risks being taken. You know, it sounds like somebody's flicking through radio stations it, it it's going a little bit more out there it's a little bit more experimental um and most of the songs were written by other people written by people that she knew the original title for the album was going to be in the words of my friends but because the song did so well they named the uh, the album after the song the album much like the rest of her career never really settles on a distinct style and that's often used as like a kind of a as as a failing on her part as a as a solo artist but i think the diversity of what she sings and how she sings it um and the different styles that she sings in is just one of the most like captivating things about her solo records like i love her solo records but i mean this album alone has kind of like country blues jazz rock gospel bluegrass um and then some songs that sound a bit more like the mamas and papas and she said about her split from the band i have a lot of things inside me to sing and i can't expect the others to wait around until i've got these things out of my system it's not that i wanted to leave the group it's just that i wanted to do some things on my own but Dunhill Records uh, weren't happy with her kind of eclectic approach to recording this album. They expected her to produce an album that was way more in the style of the Mamas and the Papas. And as such, they made the decision to basically not market it towards a mass audience and to just market it towards a kind of smaller, smaller groups. 
but I I think it was during the promotion of this album that she was the first woman to be interviewed as a Rolling Stone like cover artist. This album is billed as Mama Cass, um, but she spoke to Rolling Stone around the time of this album being released about the name Mama Cass and how she wanted to actually move away from it. Uh, she said, it's a stigma I might not be able to drop right away. I fought all my folk singing life before I was even with the mamas and papas. I hated it. Everybody'd say, hey, mama, what's happening? Then came the mamas and papas and I was stuck with it. Now people call me Mama Cass because of the baby. So I don't know whether I'm going to be able to get away to really get away from it. Um, so she she always felt that, um, you know, no, nobody was calling Michelle Mama. Like there's a there's a reason why she was called Mama and it's to do with her size. Um, and there's another song from this album. You know, she she wanted to kind of move into writing songs or singing songs that were about issues um, as it was in the 1960s. And there's a great song in this album called California Earthquake and she says about this uh, and we'll listen to it in a second there's a song on my album called the California Earthquake and the opening line is I heard they exploded the underground blast what they what they say is going to happen is going to happen at last that's the way it appears they tell me the fault they they tell me the fault line run right through here so that may be that may be what's going to happen is going to happen to me that's the way it appears that's where it's at. My sister is a part-time clairvoyant. She says, get the baby out of here, move to Kansas. I say, look, I'm here now. There must be a reason I'm here. If that's fatalistic, be, be that as it may, where my work is, where my life is. And if we're falling into the ocean, we're falling into the ocean. The second verse says, Atlantis will rise, Sunset Boulevard will fall. And what could be more timely than that? That's where it's at. So she kind of like, she's kind of a bit gas like she's just she's a bit gas she's a bit mad she talks about clairvoyance like she she's kind of into tarot and horoscopes and but she's also you know quite radical and there was something about when she when she was talking about there like where my work is where my life is and we're falling into the ocean that I was just like that you know she could she could say that now and that would feel like like it was applicable to our kind of our current political circumstances. But California Earthquake is a great song. Um, I think, do we have a clip of that? Yeah. It's such a jam. Um, that album's full of jams. It's it's a really really great album, and yeah, like I said, quite eclectic, quite um, wide ranging in terms of styles. But like her voice just really roots you. Like any song she sings, you're like, oh, there she is. It's Cass. It's fine. I'm safe. You know. Um, 
So in 69, she recorded her second album, uh, which is called Bubblegum Lemonade and Something for Mama, again under the name Mama Cass, uh, which was arranged and produced by Steve Barry. Her label didn't consider the... Uh, the debut album a success so they really wanted a songwriting duo to come in in the form of Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel uh, to write some really commercially appealing songs to like get her up the charts and she had three hits from this record which were It's Getting Better, uh, the cover Move In A Little Closer Baby and it and the album was re-released then to include her hit single Make Your Own Kind of Music and I don't need an excuse to play this, but I mean, I've, le- I've led into it, so why not? <laughs> Nobody can tell you There's only one song worth singing They may try and sell you That's real, like uh, closing end credits. Um, big, big number uh, <laughs> funeral song. Even like it's like, just yeah. do it, just do it. Yeah. Well, like right, right, right before you said funeral song, I was going to say maybe you could play that Lumo, but I didn't want to equate that too. No, you could. I mean, it's a closing. One. It's a closer. It's definitely it is. a closer. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great song. It's a really great song. And, you know, the more I read about her, the more this becomes my favorite of her songs because it really does like have that message of self love and self confidence. And it's so, it's so applicable to so many different kinds of people. And it's, yeah, it's just so, it's so lovely and it speaks to what music is supposed to actually be about instead of all this kind of bullshit. But I mean, so this was like her fun loving, free spirited album. Um, but she wasn't always very comfortable in this space kind of either. Um, she'd later question whether or not this material kind of really spoke to her and what she was what she wanted to do. Um, she spoke to Melody Maker in 1969, a week prior to the US release of the Make Your Own Kind of Music single you know, to the absolute joy, I'm sure, of her label who were trying to promote the single at the time. Um, she talked, she described it as bubblegum music. And she said, bubblegum music is very pleasant to listen to, but it's like they say about Chinese food, half an hour after tasting it, you're hungry again. But she went on to say, maybe bubblegum is what I'm supposed to be doing since my voice is very light. I just can't sing heavy material. And then later in 1971, she speaking of her time with Dunhill Records, she said that she'd been forced to be so bubblegum that I'd stick to the floor when I walked. She wanted to record music that was kind of social commentary and this didn't feel like the way to do it to her, which, you know, like I said, is is a bit ironic to me because I do think that this is an anthem for like any kind of marginalized person you can think of um, and in terms of like finding an artistic voice and expressing who they are against social and cultural conventions, but she probably just didn't see 
this song as being, you know, crossing over in, in, in that kind of way. And maybe it didn't until, until the TikTok kids found it and kind That's of so interesting. breathed new so, life into it. I mean, can you trace yeah. the, that, like, is there one particular video or is it just a trend? Like, do you know what happened? Like, what's the day one of this, uh, suddenly it's, kids? I do, I've no Mama idea Cass, why, Cass why it was this song. Yeah. It, I've no idea why it was this song that was chosen for it. Um, no idea. It just, it appeared one day during, you know, the Pedro Pascal two months that we all have on TikTok. And it's just been so lovely to see the young people kind of be like, wait a minute, this song is actually good. Who is this person? And then learning about her. And yeah. It's funny how this stuff happens. So I know I'm just so fascinated by how they like, this is, this is what crate digging is now for for kids is like, uh, I say kids, you know, I hope and if there are any Gen Zers listening, I hope they don't think I'm being um, patronizing. But well, yeah, I'm so fascinated by like, like this and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And just, it's like, why these songs? Like, what is it about these songs? Because we know they're great. Our parents know they're great. But it's like every generation that comes is, is kind of finding new ways to discover them. And it's yeah. not through their parents' record collections. It's through memes on tiktok it's funny it is yeah um, yeah it's so interesting it's just like how does yeah. how does it happen how does it how does it happen why one thing over yeah. another it's very very interesting yeah why why that song and not another one of her songs like it's yeah it's i wonder was it was it used um, in a show or anything like that or you know well that that song has been used a lot in television it, did you watch lost yeah, yeah, I did. But I mean, that was a long time ago. So, do you remember? <laughs> remember uh, your man? Was he Scottish? Your man down in the bunker. Yeah. Um. The the first episode that you meet him, um, it's playing while while he's like I think he's like doing stuff all day, and you know the way he has to keep resetting the thing, and that song is playing. That's I can't remember song. whether it's playing like diegetically or not, but that's the song. Yeah, yeah, so, and it's been used in loads of other. Um, television shows. I was looking at the wiki today. I can't remember any of them now, but I remember from Lost from watching it the first time. Um, but I don't know. Like, I, I guess when Lost first came out, I was like, "That's old people music." Yeah. Um, but because I was young, but um, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> so 1970 comes along, and she's got one album left. Um, before she's out of her contract with this label, who clearly either don't care about her or are annoyed with her for not giving not giving them what what they want um and so she does what an, any artist in that situation would do and releases um basically like a best of sort of thing uh mama's big ones came out in 1970 the label felt that kind of message driven records i think was the phrase i read uh were over they were done it's not the 60s anymore now we're into the era of love songs so they wanted her to sing some love songs so they released this kind of compilation record that would free her from her co from her contract um of love songs and previously released songs that she had um they didn't include california earthquake but they did include uh mamas and papas hit words of love uh which featured her as a lead vocalist so i i don't know whether that's them digging you know the boot in and being like you should have sounded more like the mamas and papas but that's how i read it anyway 
then she records an album with with um who did she record the album with um sorry one second yeah Dave Mason, sorry, I, d- I didn't have it in my. Uh, she records. She records an album with Dave Mason, and then she signs with RCA, with whom she released two commercially unsuccessful albums. <laughs> but around that time, she was kind of like entering into the world of cabaret and singing standards at shows, and kind of leaving pop and rock music altogether. And she she took a show to Las Vegas um, and was accused of selling out. And there's a really cool interview with her. I, I, she's on some late night talk show and she's just such a such joy in those interviews at, at that stage. But um, t- talking about like, oh, well, what do you say to people who, who say that? Like you've sold out and you sold out in the counterculture. And she was talking about how when when she was in the Mamas and the Papas, there was this kind of marketing of them as like this kind of madcap, like family, like of hippies. And she was like, I wasn't a hippie. I did like musical theater. And that was just what was in at the time. And that's the way we dressed and people liked it. So we did it, but I wasn't a hippie. And so you could say that I've kind of, you know, I've, I'm i not selling out. I'm just returning to like mm. my roots, uh, which I think is which I think is really nice. So she gets rave reviews for um, her show in Las Vegas. Um, the Las Vegas Sun wrote, Cass Elliott making a strong point that she is no longer Mama Cass has a good act serving notice that she is here to stay. The audience was with her all the way, no empty seats anywhere. And her fi- the final record that she would release uh, was called Don't Call Me Mama Anymore, which was the name of the show that she was... Um, that she put on and it was a live album of those songs that were recorded in Chicago. But her Vegas time, I won't go into too much of it again for time. There's really a lot to say about her, but I mean, the run up to Vegas when she was starting the, I suppose today you'd call it a residency, um, was very, very difficult for her. She, she basically went on this like crash diet where she would, she wouldn't eat for like four days a week and she cut out all white food and it was you know it was like today we'd call it eating disorder behavior but then she very very openly spoke about it on on talk shows she was constantly asked about her weight and what she's doing and what her diet is and she was just so like open to discussing it and so graceful about how she discussed it and how she answered questions like that that I can just imagine if anyone ever asked me a question as personal as any of that I I would just flip out and start flipping desks um but she was just so so um so graceful about it but um yeah so that that kind of yo-yo dieting and crash dieting up up to and during the the Vegas shows um is thought to be the reason that she died at 32. Like that message was clear. She died because she was fat and it was the gleeful kind of reportage of the death of a 32-year-old mother. Um, And it's kind of only in recent years that the music industry has been like held to account for, not not for her. I, I still think that she is owed like full written apologies in many uh print publications around the world um but it's only kind of in recent years that we are starting to see pop stars being treated as people um and when I say recent years I really mean recent I'm talking about 
Billie Eilish. I'm talking about Lizzo. Like I'm talking about people who's who they themselves haven't been playing ball with the idea that you have to fit a certain mold or look a certain way in order to be a a pop star. And, you know, if, if you take someone like Lizzo, it's very much part of her branding, I suppose. Um, I, I don't mean that in a, in a, you know, cynical way, yeah. in a bad way, in a cynical way, but it is, it's part, it's part of her, it's part of who she is. Um, and she does a lot for, you know, normalizing fat bodies in the, in the media, which is amazing. And then you have someone like Billie Eilish who decided to just not let anybody see what shape her body was at all for, for many years, uh, while, while she was young. And that in itself was a really fascinating commentary on how we treat young women's bodies in, in the, in the, in the industry. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think it is changing, but I guess, with Cass Elliott, there's just, there's a, there's a lesson there in terms of like how we treat women, how we treat fat women, how we treat people who have died. Um, and like, and, and to, to not make people the butt of jokes and to take them seriously. And it's just, she, she had a very, very, very sad life. And it's, it's kind of compounded by the sadness of knowing that if she existed today, things would only be marginally better for her, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I get, I mean, that's. Yeah. In a way it's, it takes a, a the TikTok generation to um, shine a light on an artist that was uh, unfairly treated. And uh, this piece here says, uh, I mean, the song has been featured and at this point this was march uh when this came out at least forty six thousand videos over 32 million views so that song has been heard by a lot of mm. people and uh cass mm. elliott's daughter owen elliott kugel uh said it's the coolest thing owen elliott is a fucking legend oh, really? by the way like yeah I'll, I'll tell you about owen elliott in a minute, okay but yeah, go on. the quote is it's the coolest thing i could possibly even conceptualize I'm a total TikTok junkie and I'm in love and I'm loving in particular the context that people are using the song because it's completely accurate to in the whole attitude. Make your own kind of music is really about like, fuck you. I'm going to do whatever I want no matter what anyone thinks. Uh, one of my main goals in my life is make sure that her legacy stays prominent and alive. The thing that people connect with about my mom is the idea that triumphing, uh, triumphing over adversity. She was a woman in a man's world who paved the way for other women of size and that's really important. Yeah, Owen, Owen Elliott is amazing. So I, I was watching a TikTok video today of somebody kind of giving, remember I was saying earlier that people think that she was kicked out of the band. So somebody had made a video, like in, in good faith, but just not very well researched, uh, a young person saying like, oh yeah, and she was kicked out of the ba band and that's really sad. And then you just see Owen Elliott commenting on the TikTok being like, my mom left the band to go solo. She didn't get kicked out and I clicked through and it's her. Like, um, And she's she's amazing. She she um, gave the speech when when Cass was, uh, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and was just so eloquent. She looks exactly like her mom. Like she's like the spitting image of her like it's it's crazy um and she's really great she's done loads of work in terms of like in terms of making sure that her legacy is understood um and that her contributions to the band were properly kind of understood and yeah i, li I like that that she says that she was a woman in a man's world because 
there there are a lot of women who in this in the in that counterculture paved the way but a lot of those women also had privileges that weren't afforded to women like Cass um, because she was a larger woman and that aren't afforded to black women and aren't afforded to all these kind of other, you know, there's a, there's an intersectionality when it comes mm. to Cass Elliot that I think is really important to engage with uh, when we're talking about, you know, quote unquote women in music and that we're not just talking about one kind of woman in music all the time. And yeah, and I mean, I, I, I mean, when I was reading all of this today, I just got so, I got really sad for just that it was all, it all felt like it was for nothing, you know, like when I think about the 1990s and I mean, I know the 1990s and, and the 2000s were a particularly difficult time to be a girl or a woman or to be somebody who was into pop music um, or pop culture at all. Um, and when you look at what pop stars looked like um during those years um and what people on television look like during those years it, through today's lens it is it can genuinely be quite shocking to see how thin people on television are and how thin pop stars were and how small Britney Spears was and like that she was a kid and Christina Aguilera and all of them like and that it was just so normalized and that it just felt like it was it was going backwards. But I think the the shock factor of that of looking at that now maybe indicates that we're moving to into a space where, you know, fatphobia is still absolutely 100 percent exists in our society and, and it's and it's everywhere. And you see it in, in the backlash towards the really, really important work that fat activists are doing to dismantle that. But I guess at least now we're having conversations about it. At least now it's it's not OK to circle to put a red circle around somebody's thigh if they have cellulite or you know if they put on a bit of weight it's just that's not that's not accepted anymore but yeah I don't know it made me made me sad for the 90s made me hopeful for the future and definitely for the kids that are that are coming up now who are embracing Cass Elliot which just makes me so happy yeah yeah I mean it's crazy how these things come back uh out of nowhere seemingly and then mm. um <clears throat> there's a renaissance of some kind but yeah um that's really fascinating yeah. thank you for sharing that story i hadn't completely missed it because i am not on tiktok anymore well i am but I, like i, I don't <laughs> use it so uh, i had welcome. seen it i mean I maybe, seen the meme, but, like, maybe down the road i'll um i'll go into like the other parts of her life which are you know equally or like more fascinating kind of plot wise but maybe a bit more complicated and tricky, you know, social commentary wise. Um, yeah. Like she, she, she held a lot of parties. Uh, it was like Cass's house, like was like she, you know, every star in the 1960s you could imagine went to parties at her house. Um, and she knew quite well, both the victims and the perpetrators of the Manson murders, you know, like, so it, it was, she was really entrenched in that whole environment like that whole that whole scene like she was she was in there um and yeah i mean just like one thing about her arrest in uh in england um so the mamas and papas arrived i think on boat and uh to play some shows or something um i think it might have been liverpool and 
the the cops were waiting for them after uh, they got off the boat to arrest her for like having drugs. So they're like the band are trying to like you know throw away their bags of weed or whatever. Like it was it was like when the Beatles were arrested. Yeah. Like it was just they just had weed on them. Like it was nothing. Um, so uh, they arrest her anyway, and she spends a night in a cell, and then she's released. And on her way out, there's like paparazzi images or like you know newsy images of her walking out eating a cookie um and it, and it's like a weed cookie that they just didn't confiscate from her because they didn't know and so she's like leaving the police station and eating it and nobody knew at the time that that's what it was and there's like pictures of her from like you know 15 20 minutes later with the band and i don't know if it's the way she's photographed but she looks like she's high and happy to be out of jail. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's how I think of her. <laughs> that's good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, oh, she's amazing. And I mean, God, if you just search any, like obviously a lot of the inter- interviews are tinged with like, you know, the gross questions that she's asked about her weight and stuff. But she is a really enjoyable person to watch being interviewed, especially later on in her career when she just has this like this confidence and this grace and this like ownership of who she is and her body and her work and um she's a really really fascinating uh person to see talk and i i i got i got really sad cuz i saw this um video of her um in an interview saying oh i'm i'm going to be uh 33 in september and of course she wouldn't because she'd die before then and it was it was so close to when when she died and i was just like my god like it's 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 fascinating to have this footage of her like and just to to know and understand that she she had no idea there was no way that anyone was going to know it wasn't like she was like extremely addicted to drugs it wasn't like one of those things where it's like oh well you know it's a tragedy but we're not surprised it was just so sudden and so sad but yeah she's amazing definitely go and deep dive into her go and listen to her solo albums um i get a lot of joy out of them i think they're great great um should we play another song before we go let's just let's just bookend this for a second here hold on let's just do the rest of this okay Maybe rough going just to do your thing, the hardest thing to do. But you gotta make your own kind of music, sing your own special song, make your own kind of music, even if nobody else sings Thank you, Andrea Cleary, and thank you, uh, Cass Elliott, for all that. And uh, we appreciate the uh, deep dive into (laughs) 
the life and times of uh, Cassie. Thanks so much. That was lovely. Thank you very much for allowing me to just gush about it. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, next week we're going to be doing. I think it's the best of because I'm away the following week. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. on a holiday. God, this month went quickly. I know. Yeah, yeah. May is May is steaming head. So I think we'll do mm. the best of next week. May's over, man. May's over. over. May's done. over. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, the grass is getting long, or has got long all all month. So yeah, we're we're about to hit. So there's some seasons. people around me who are um they're adhering to no mow May. Oh yeah, I mean in their gardens. Mm-hmm. I get it, which is I lovely. Very very nice to see. Uh, yeah, we have a back garden, and I've uh, I've uh, uh, cut a long section for all the bees and everything. So it's real nice. Excellent. Uh, and, and the cats very love nice. it too, don't you? Fucking weirdos. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Thank. Do you know what we won't have yet? Anyway. Anyway, you're bloody leaf blowers, <laughs> guy. Uh, but they may be cutting the grass. They might be cutting the grass. Oh yeah. No. It's it's only no mo May that we're adhering to in my apartment block. I I reckon first of June they're all going to be out. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we'll see. But no sign of leaf leaf blowing man just yet. But there's still time. Never speak. Never speak uh, of his of his name. He will just appear. The more times you say it. Exactly. Uh, on, on the day, on the hour, um, he's there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's patreon.com forward slash 909 if you do like what you, and you appreciate this podcast and the website 909.com and you want to support us and you want to join, more importantly as well, join our Discord where uh, all of the community, 909 music community are hanging out and chatting and going to gigs together and uh, all the nice things that are, uh, you know, all the nice parts of the internet without any of the the badness, I need the toxicity. That's exactly what it so, is. Yeah. yeah, this is where the internet still actually exists in its in its nice form <laughs> and uh, can yeah. still be a place that exists in 2023. So, Patreon.com/slash yeah. nine if you want to, uh, if you're interested in that. And thank you to all of those who have signed up. And even if you're thinking about signing up, I appreciate your thoughts <laughs> okay <laughs> thoughts and prayers yeah that's it from us this week uh thank you andrea uh podcast.909.com if you have any thoughts or questions or you want to get in touch with us about various things uh so that's it from us this week okay bye, bye.